This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredder's jammed, but I think I... fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills, then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Stop. Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. This is Brian Reisman. Welcome to Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hard rock and heavy metal fans know the name Tony Harnell because of his soulful singing, insightful lyrics, and soaring high notes. He has endeared himself to devout fans while enduring the changing trends of the music business for over 35 years. Tony's fame first came about in the 80s and 90s, fronting the Norwegian band TNT, who created memorable and melodic anthems like 10,000 Lovers in One, Intuition, and Just Like God. Tony has toured intermittently with TNT over the last decade, and he has fronted other melodic hard rock bands during his career, including Westworld and Starbreaker, the latter of whom reunited to release their third studio album, Dysphoria, in 2019 and maybe that band's heaviest offering yet. By contrast, the new Love Killers album with Tony is sheer 80s melodic rock bliss. As this podcast is making its way into the internet ether, Tony is getting ready to travel to Australia for a solo tour from March 7th through the 15th. He'll be performing for fans down under for the first time, and possibly catching some waves in his free time. For lucky episode number 13 of Side Jams, Tony spoke with me via Skype from his new home base in Nashville to discuss his love of surfing both as a participant and spectator, along with another lifelong passion, skateboarding, which long after his professional teen years he has continued doing for fun. He also told me about his recent certification as a health coach. All in all, we had a fun chat about wild waves, wipeouts, and the art of riding water and concrete. So let's roll into it. Tony, it's great to chat with you again. Welcome to Side Jams. Thank you, Brian. Have you been? I've been good, and you're you're down in Nashville now. I am in Nashville, yeah, I, a place I'd never ne- could never dreamed <laughs> that I would be. <laughs> so here I am, yeah. But it's great. How many years were you in New York? Gosh, uh, I moved there from San Diego at about seventeen. So uh, wow. I won't say how many, but let's just say most of my adult life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw you. I have, I have a memory from way before the last time I saw you. I remember a bunch of us going to the, the screening for the Rockstar movie. Oh, yes, right. You know, and watching wow. the reaction. It was like you, me, and this J.J. French, a bunch of people. Basically, it was like the club from the uh, from the old days was back together. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've obviously been doing a lot of acoustic shows and other things, too, in the city. And uh, Nashville is a whole new adventure, although 
Not mm. uh, not that close to the beach because I know we were going to talk about your yeah. love of surfing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's the one thing that sort of uh, you know. Uh, honestly, the minute I got to New York, I, I, I did not move there by choice. Um, my mother was an opera singer, and she moved to New York a, about two years, I think, maybe a, a year or two before I did. And yeah. so I stayed back in California to presumably live out my life. I, I wasn't really sure that I was going to be ever going to New York. And I finished high school early and I got heavily into, I was a professional skateboarder when I was uh, 14 and 15. Wow. And, and I was always a surfer from the time I was really young. I was body surfing and uh, we lived by the beach a few times, um, moved around a lot, but that was always like my first love. And I got really heavily into surfing. Um, probably around the same age I was skateboarding a lot and then it just sort of became my number one passion and I was going every day um, for a couple of years uh, last year of high school and my last year that I spent in California and my grandparents were like yeah this is uh, you know you're you're 16 you're out of high school you're surfing every day what are you going to do and I'm like I'm going to be a pro surfer and they were like no you're not (laughs) So uh, they're like, well, you have two choices. You either go to uh, go to college here in San Diego and uh, and we'll take care of it or you got to go to New York. And for some reason, and I forgot about that. I forgot they even gave me that option because yeah. now when my grandfather, who's 92, when he tells me this, I'm like, I don't remember that option. I would have totally taken that option. So I'm not sure if he if he's getting it wrong or I am. But either way, I ended up in New York and. I did uh, drive my car out, or my dad did, and with my surfboard in it. And I tried to keep that going for a while. I went to Long Island, and I found where all the waves were, and got all the numbers for the surf, the surf line numbers that you call to find out where the waves are happening on any given day. And I, I tried, but you know, it wasn't that close to where we were in Queens, uh, which is where I first moved. And, right. Um, it just kind of petered out after a while. I picked it up again later when I moved to Long Island for for probably two years and got pretty good again. Um, but it might, you know, by that time I was in my late twenties and early thirties and my, my serious, you know, my, my days of having it, you know, being competitive were over. So. Right. Right. But it's just more for fun after that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I still love it. And I, so, you know, when I moved there, my initial thing was, I said to my mom, I'm here. I hate it. I'm going to get back to California as soon as humanly possible. And, you know, almost 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yeah. That's funny. And they actually televise a lot of competitions, surfing competitions. Um, they do. But, you know, with social media and with uh, with the Internet now, uh, I, I follow all the major surfing Facebook pages and so forth and Instagram. So like right now, there's a big uh competition in Portugal at a place called Nazar or Nazari. I'm not sure how they say it. And um, I'm probably saying it wrong both ways, but it's one <laughs> of the, it's one of the biggest waves in the world. Right. And, and maybe the biggest wave in the world um, outside of Jaws and Hawaii. Okay. They're having a huge competition right now. In fact, today somebody got hurt really bad. I'm not sure how they're doing. They're in the hospital. So I, yeah, I get these alerts, you know, like world, I can't remember the name of the page, but it's like a, uh, it, it just comes up and says, you know, it just went live with some competition. And I end up getting, I, I go right on, I watch it live from wherever it is in the world, and I get sucked in and start watching it. And usually it's late at night here for me because it, it might be in uh, 
Europe or you know someplace far away. So, but yeah, I, I follow it loosely. I kind of I kind of have an idea of who's the world, the current world champion, and things like that. How much has the sport changed since you started? Oh wow! I mean, first of all, when I was surfing, you know, the top pros were were staying on the wave for the most part. There are a couple little you know, little things they would do where they'd sort of float on top and come back. But I mean, now they're popping out like, um, like skateboarders and, and snowboarders. Now, now they've, they've figured out how to, it's been years now since they started doing this, but they're only getting better and better at it. Um, basically riding a wave with these really fast little, uh, boards that are, that are able to, um, you know, these guys uh, are getting, are getting huge amounts of air and they're just popping over the lip and, and, you know, five feet or more above the lip and the lip is the top of the wave for those who don't know. And, and they're, you know, turning in the air doing flips and spins and all sorts of stuff and landing back on the wave and they keep going, which is just crazy. So it's developed into, um, quite an incredible sport. And it's always been a very athletic sport, a very difficult sport because it involves a lot of upper body strength with people, which people don't realize because of all the paddling that you do. Um, most of what you do when you surf is paddling. Right. Um, and, and there's uh, for a most, for the most part in most places in the world where there aren't a lot of waves coming through on any given day, you're paddling much more than you're on your feet on the board. So well, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I was sort of doing a little research into like surfing one one and it's interesting how you really, I mean, before you get out there, you've got to stretch, you got to get a lay of the land, really the lay of the waves. I guess you have to see what it looks like before you get out there. Yep. You have to really wait almost an hour after you eat to get out there so to avoid getting cramps. Yeah. What, what kind of rituals have you done in the past and what do you do again well, as getting ready? Well, um, probably all that stuff. You know, I mean, when I was I was I was surfing before school uh, my last couple of years. Well, especially the last because I had a car uh, when I was 16. So, you know, I'd get up and probably four or five in the morning and go to the beach and surf for an hour or so. Hit, hit class. Uh, with wet oh, hair wow. and the board locked in the back, you know, just take we, we you know California. Well, everywhere really, even in Long Island, you you you, you put your wetsuit on and take it off uh, in the parking lot. You know, uh, you put a towel around your waist and you you know peel it off and throw it in the back of the car. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, <clears throat> the eating thing for sure because the waves are always in most places in the world they're the best early in the morning because there's no wind. So uh, the lower the wind, the better the waves. And there are cycles throughout the day where the waves are the best because of the wind and the tides. So the combination of the two is is what you look for. So early in the morning and late in the afternoon, early evening before the sun goes down, things get calm again. So that's what you look for there. So I'd go before and after school if the waves were good and there was a good swell. And and all all the things you just said. You know, you go down, uh, you stand uh, on the shoreline for a while and just kind of look out and see where they look like they're, you know, break. Now, most surf spots that are popular, because of the way the bottom is shaped, when the waves are good, they tend to break generally around the same area, uh, general vicinity in the water. So if there's mm-hmm. a reef or some kind of interesting bottom, which, which is what creates the shape of the waves, is how the bottom is shaped, you know, that'll determine where you are going to paddle out and focus your your attention when you're in the water. 
I mean, it's also not necessarily a good idea to be around too many other surfers in the same yeah. area, right? Yeah, but it happens. And and in some areas when, like in certain spots in California, Florida, and uh, and even Long Island, on a good day when it's warm and, you know, it's like, it gets real crowded and it gets dangerous as well. And it can even get violent because people get angry at each other and they start to, <laughs> they can cry. I mean, there there's all, also that local you know, locals only thing, which started in the 70s or probably in the 60s even actually. And Hawaii's brutal for that. You know, I don't know if it still is, probably still is. Um, If you're not a local or they don't know you, some of the spots that are like a little bit maybe secret or whatever, um, you have to get like, you have to know people to be even be allowed to paddle out there. That's so unusual. It's like, it's, it's weird to think it's competitive even if you're just riding waves for fun. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like they don't want a lot of guys. If they're if they're local guys that grew up in that around that beach, they don't want a lot of other guys in the water because that means they don't catch as many waves that day. Okay. So yeah, so it's a little bit of a kind of hey, this is our turf and we want to catch the most waves. If you watch that documentary on Dogtown and the Z Boys, right? Um, there's a whole segment in the beginning about all this that I'm talking about with Venice Beach and the local scene. And they used to beat the crap out of people and screw their car up when they were in the out wow. in the water. They'd come out and like trash their car or steal steal stuff. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, or beat them up. <laughs> yeah, I thought this surfing these seemed such a peaceful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it should be, and I think for the most part it actually is. But there's definitely this aggro. They call it like this aggro thing where it can get pretty brutal. You were talking earlier about like the biggest waves. I mean, the place you were talking about actually has the largest waves. It's one of the yeah. They're they're about. Uh, I mean, there are three three really famous spots, maybe three or four that have huge waves. Um, Jaws right. and Jaws off Maui, uh, off the coast of Maui. Um, that's the first one that everybody kind of really learned how to ride these gigantic waves and when i say gigantic i mean upwards of 80 to 100 foot faces which is crazy right so wow uh, and there's a whole sort of technical thing that goes with that because the wave is so big it moves real fast so they have to have certain kinds of equipment and then there's the tow end surfing which is where they have the jet skis in the water and they actually uh, don't need as big a board because they can get pulled into it because the wave moves so fast so they have longer boards if they're going to paddle into these huge waves because the longer boards paddle faster. But they don't actually need a long board to ride the wave itself because once they're on the wave, then it's a smaller board is, is fine. So there's Maui. There's Jaws in Maui. There's Mavericks in Northern California, okay. um, which is up near um, San Francisco. And then there's... Uh, uh, this place, Nazar, Nazar or Nazari or whatever it's called, it's N-A-Z-A-R-E. It's in okay. Portugal, and that's where they are right now. And they all have just humongous. The one in, in Portugal, I I hear is uh, it's the mo- one of the mo- I think it's the most dangerous one because of where it breaks and how it breaks. And okay, uh, it's pretty crazy. You can see the footage. I mean, the guy, the guy, the last guy to break the world record for the biggest wave ridden, which they do every year. I think that was it maybe even a couple years in a row. I think some guy rode like an 80-foot wave or something, or 100-foot wave. The only so far you can go because there's only so high the waves can go unless you have a tsunami. You know, honestly, these waves are probably bigger than what a tsunami... A, a tsunami is an interesting thing because it's really more of a wall of water. 
mm. than it is a big spiked wave. Because what happens with, with these waves is they roll along, the swell comes in from way out in the water, and depending on what the bottom is like, or as the waves, as the swell is approaching the shore, the bottom of the ocean determines whether the wave, whether the swell jacks up into a big wave or just kind of gently washes in. And also how the storms converge out in deep water, if they come together and create more power. There's so many different, I mean, it's a full-on thing that these guys study. Now, one of the things that's progressed compared, you ask me how has it progressed, well, one of the biggest waves is that it's moved forward is because of the internet uh, and all the satellite and, and all the you know crazy technology they have, they can predict very, very accurately where where and when, you know, the the best waves are going to break. So these top pros and the magazines and the photographers and all these teams, um, they actually are following this all the time. And the ones that have money and they're doing this basically full time for a living, which there are quite a few that do, they just um, they have it all logged in and they they all talk to each other and they're like, okay, so the next you know next thing's going to happen, you know, maybe in Mexico, and then the next one's like you know somewhere in Europe, and then. Um, Hawaii or Portugal, mm. and they're just constantly chasing, or California or East Coast, and they're just constantly moving around, following this um, the satellite um, imagery and what's happening with storms, and they they can predict it perfectly based on all these different factors. Yeah. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall, subject to change. So now, what kind of surfboard do you prefer? And is there a certain gear that you like, a wetsuit, etc.? Like I said, it's been a while so um, since I was super serious. But, I mean, I, I still look at boards, and I'm, I'm sort of interested. I, I would love to try some of these new boards. But when I was surfing, originally in the 70s, I, I rode a twin fin. And it was back then they were the boards were relatively thick and buoyant compared to what they became later. In the 90s, I was riding more uh, of, a, of a thruster. So a twin fin is two fins. Right, and a thruster is um, three fins and sometimes four fins, I believe, and and I can't remember that might even have a different name, but uh, so the the thruster is usually one fin in the middle and the back, and two on the sides and the back, and the the top of it has a certain shape as well. Are they fiberglass? Yeah, yeah, fiberglass. They're doing different things, I think, with them now. They're they probably, uh, in fact, I know they are experimenting and and are using different properties now, but. Depending on what on what kind of surfer you are, there's a board for it. So if you're like a top pro that's you know doing all the latest tricks and all that stuff, you're going to have a high performance board. 
that's going to turn fast and be stable and light at the same time. And um, it's a whole thing. And of course, um, not to sidetrack from your question, but they also have these this new technology now where they're they're building parks that have man-made waves that are perfect. So um, and they've gotten way better. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not like those stupid things you see on it on a cruise ship. I mean, these are these are big spaces that they that they buy land and they build basically um, a, a piece of a piece of ocean. They build. And they have these um, different different ones use different technology. So there's there's a couple famous ones in Florida. I mean they're popping up everywhere. But there's one really good one in um, California called the Surf Ranch, which is owned by Kelly Slater, who's like one more world champions than anybody. Everybody kind of knows who he is. Yeah. Um, and and it's amazing if you watch the footage from it. It's just this perfect wave. And so this is going to change the sport a lot because. These guys can now go train every single day, and it doesn't matter if there's a swell in the ocean or if, if the waves are good because they're good every day at this place, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how they're going to introduce this sport into the Olympics because I believe this next coming Olympics is going to be the first year that they have surfing. Yeah, it's in Tokyo 2020. I was going to bring that up. I'm amazed that it, it hadn't been included before, but I, I never thought about it until I was going to do this interview, <laughs> and I looked it up. Yeah, and I think I, I believe they're building a special uh, wave pool for for the competition so that they can not have to worry about the weather and what the waves are going to be like from day to day. So, um, I mean, more controlled circumstances. Though. Totally. So then it's all about the performance um, rather than um, worried about the, you know, which... I love the factor, and most surfers do too, of the unpredictability of the ocean and the nature. That's really what surfing is all about. It's about unpredictability, and it's about your ability as a surfer to read what the ocean is doing. And there's this purity too, the surfer against, you know, nature, uh, or not against, but, you know, trying to merge with it. And, and, you know, it's it's, it's kind of um, depending on the size of the wave and 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 what the ocean is doing it's a very sort of um it's a spiritual sport rather than um what it becomes in a in a wave in a man-made wave pool it becomes much more of a um a different kind of sport altogether so it it, it kind of loses some of that spirituality that you get with a guy in the water you know because there were many mornings when i was the only person out in the ocean right. and i was 16 years old it's probably not the safest thing in the world you know but yeah, I knew what I was doing, but still doesn't mean, you know, experts die surfing all the time. So, I mean, obviously there are certain aspects of surfing that probably haven't changed at all since you were a kid. Yeah. Are there common mistakes that you find young surfers making when you, know, you, when you notice it when you watch them? I haven't been around it to that degree that you're talking about, but I'm sure it's mostly the same. I mean, there's, there's definitely a learning curve. A lot of these really good young surfers now from what I'm observing, are oftentimes the younger brother of some great surfer, you know, or, oh, right, or right. son or daughter. And there's a lot of good female surfers now, um, which that's a huge change in the sport as well. So, uh, and, and they're, you know, to the point where they're, I'm not sure if they're as good as a lot of the men, but they're, they're real close, really close, you know. Obviously, there are some probably some surf conditions out there that are not safe. When you see people going out when it's before a major storm, is that really not? That's I assume that's not really a good idea. No, actually, if if you know where to go and the conditions haven't you know are, are right, surfing 
as a storm is approaching way out in the ocean. So, for example, one of the things that surfers on the East Coast look for is hurricanes. So during her mm. during hurricane season, they're all like figuring out, you know, they're watching it really closely. And as it gets closer or, you know, and when I say closer, I mean still hundreds or even a thousand miles, but usually hundreds of miles away, the waves can be incredible uh, because the the winds will be still be calm. But you'll, you'll have that power coming from way out in the ocean so the waves start picking up and the conditions can be the best conditions that you'll get on the East Coast. Um, that, okay. That's from all the way at the, from, from Maine down to Florida. It, you know, you'll get incredible conditions. But there are times, yeah, there, you know, the things, the, the mistakes that sur- young or you know, beginning surfers make are going to be similar mistakes to what um, swimmers might make in the ocean. The ocean is, uh, is not a pool. You know, if you don't understand rip currents and, and all these these kinds of things, uh, you can get yourself in trouble. I had I saved a couple of people in my day, you know, that got caught in the wrong spot. When you when, oh, wow. when you're in the water a lot, you kind of learn where to what the water looks like uh, and how it it's behaving. And you can literally be ten feet away from a bad current and be fine. And you you go sideways. And you can tell, you can see how the surface of the water looks. You can tell where it actually is. And I had a couple of times where somebody I was swimming in the water with sort of went over to the side too much, even though I said, don't go over there. And they went over there. And I, I had to risk my life, too, to go over there and, like, pull them in. What was the most exhilarating surfing experience you had? And what's the most dramatic wipeout that you ever had? I had a lot of bad wipeouts. But... Um, the most exhilarating that I can remember, there were a couple of them. Um, one was I went to, I used to go meet some buddies at Huntington Beach in Cal, which is probably the most famous surf spot in California. It was a huge day. It was so big, they had closed the pier. So the waves were actually breaking over the top of the pier and sort of the water was splashing on the surface where you walk. So they had that closed. That's how big the waves were. I was at that point, I was good. I, I was good enough that when I saw how big they were that day, I was nervous, but I wasn't, I wasn't afraid to paddle out. I, I had surfed enough and constantly and consistently enough where I was, I was okay with it. But my buddies weren't quite as uh, confident. So um, we all paddled out, but I was the only one that made it out to the, you know, to where the waves were breaking safely through the, all the white water and the, uh, right. the closer waves. And, um, and I took off, uh, I, I think I only took off on one wave that day, but it was really big and really fun. And my buddies were watching from the shore. And I just remember very well at the end, of, at, when I got to the bottom of it, it, the wave was huge. So it just sort of closed out in front of me and I, I wiped out. But that's how the waves were breaking that day. And it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of, a lot of good experiences uh, surfing, though. Both and also in Long Island, too. And how does it make you feel? emotionally when you're doing it. it's just like like i said it's a very spiritual sport so if it's the right conditions and the right day and the and you know the it helps if the weather's even nice um even if you're wearing a wetsuit if the sun's out you know the wind is maybe not too strong and and it's blowing the right direction and it, it just sort of all comes together and you feel very connected to nature you know i, I there was such yeah. a long period of time where there was no place i'd rather be than in the ocean I'm sure that's that's just always going to be with me, whether I'm near it or not. I always have a craving to be, to be near it. Uh, in fact, talking about it right now, I wanna, almost want to get in my car and drive to the ocean tomorrow. You know, <laughs> uh, how, how long of a drive is it to the ocean from where you are? Good question. 
I think I think I'm going to have to look. It's pr- I'm going to guess it's going to be probably uh, probably Georgia or something. Is probably going to be maybe the closest yeah. place. A few hours then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any place that you'd like to surf? That I would like to that, and haven't? Yeah. Well, I'm about to go to Australia for the first time in my life on March 2nd. And I'm That's right. extremely excited because I've been wanting to go since I was a kid in California and was surfing. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have time to surf, but the, the promoter knows that I want to try to get to the beach and, and at least try to surf one afternoon or morning or whatever. So we'll see. How, how long are you going to be there for? I'm there from the 2nd to the 15th. So I'm oh, nice. two of those days, or 16th actually. So two of those are obviously travel days, but... Uh, well, actually, I'm not there from the second. What am I saying? This is the funny thing. So you leave here on the second, and you actually get there on the fourth because of the time difference and the length of the flight. I wow. was just looking at the flight time, and it's about 25. Depending on which, which flight they booked me on, it's anywhere from 25 to, to 30 hours the whole trip to get there. Jesus. Yeah. Especially from here, it's longer because you have to go Nashville, L.A., and then they have direct flights from L.A. over there. Another thing I meant, you mentioned that you're uh, like a health coach, fitness. Yeah, I've never coach, certified fitness coach. Or uh, is it? It's a, no, uh, I I wouldn't mind being that, but no, it's just general health. So, um, yeah, you know, in 2009, I lost my mom to breast cancer, and I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and I had my thyroid removed along with yeah. some along with wow. some lymph nodes. So it's been 10 years, almost 11, cancer free. Excellent. And then in 2011, I lost my the TNT's longtime keyboard player, at, and he was only 44. He died of cancer, and wow, my right. my grandmother died the same that year as well. And at that point, it was like this is crazy. And of course, all the people I you know kind of knew a little bit or friends of friends and family, and I was like, what is going on? I knew this wasn't right because there were just certain things that just were not happening years ago. So I just right. kind of wanted to like know. I've always been into. I was always into eating really well and um, started eating pretty much all organic, like in the late '80s or early early '90s. So I just had a, a, an interest in it anyway. And then I just like got determined to figure out, okay, what is going on? So I, it was a year long course, pretty not not cheap. And I did it with a lot of integrity. A lot of integrity is a good word. Yeah, a lot of uh, interest and intention. And I really did it and really studied. And I got my certification. And I don't really know what my intention was. I think it was just to learn, maybe write a book, maybe do some seminars or something. I I, I did coach a few people one on one, but okay. Um, but I learned quickly that most people really don't don't want to change what they're doing. So I, <laughs> yeah, unless, I, unless they have to, that's the human way. Yeah. So I didn't get a lot of satisfaction out of doing it because I, I it was it's just very hard to to do that one on one. I did get offered. Yeah. Uh, I had a really good friend in New York who is um, a world renowned um, natural physician doctor. He's an MD, but he switched over to natural medicine, and he wanted me to actually work in his office. But at the time, my tour schedule wouldn't allow it, or I would have actually been interested in in experiencing that for a little while just to see what it was like. So how have your eating habits changed since you you got that certification? Um, I actually tried during that year when I was studying. You learn, and it's probably more now, the same school. Uh, I learned over 100 science-backed diets. Wow. I tried different ones that I thought were interesting. 
And I ended up back to the one that I was on sort of before I started the whole thing because that's the one that made me feel the best and both my doctors were backing it. So that's what I sort of gravitated back to. Recently, I've been experimenting with um, vegan and also just vegetarianism. So okay. I'm kind of around the, that and just kind of look, taking a look at that again based on a lot of different things and just trying to find the best way to do it. So I'm, just, I'm always kind of looking at, you know, what's the optimum, A, number one, what makes me feel the best and gives me the most energy. And it's pretty easy to figure out if, if, if you're sleeping well and you have a lot of energy during the day, you probably found the right diet. You know, it's, it's just so simple. As, as opposed to a quickie diet to lose weight fast. Yeah, because the, the funny thing about the word diet is when I think of what, what diet am I, I think about just a lifestyle. This is not, I'm not doing this for any other reason than for health. So this is how I eat. I think if more people took that on, even just the simplest thing of um, the, the idea of 80-20, um, which is just, you know, 80% really healthy. And, but most people wouldn't know what, right. most people wouldn't even, wouldn't know what that 80% was and if they didn't have a coach or um, they weren't privy to it. And there are so many opinions out there, which is where listening to your body comes into play because we are all different and you know slight adjustments to if somebody wants to be vegan for um you know for for ethical reasons or they or spiritual or whatever um some there's so many ways to be vegan um and so many ways to be other types of things and so you just have to right. kind of figure out what foods do you respond well to and it's kind of a whole interesting deep thing you know so you know, I wanted to get back to you. Mean you were a professional state skateboarder as a kid. So how long does that last for? And what what kind of competitions were you? Well, doing? I was in actually because of the timing of doing it. I was lucky enough to be in the very very first professional vertical pool competition, at, really? which was held at Spring Valley Skate Park in San Diego in 1978. I think it was 78. Wow. And it was all the top pros were there, and it was a really big deal. All the magazines, well, you know, there, there were quite a few at the time, actually, but there were the big magazines, like Skateboarder was always the biggest, and, and there was yeah. Trans World, and there were a few other skateboard magazines. Um, this is before Thrasher, yep. several years before. So I was in that, and it was really funny. I did okay. I, I was a little nervous. I really didn't like competing. I loved the sport, but I, I didn't love competing. Uh, mm. I'm still like that today. I really don't love competition. Uh, but I competed, and then they had this other part of the skate park where they had this um, plexiglass full pipe. Half of it was a full pipe, and half of it was a half pipe. And right. I was over there skating with all the other pros that, would, that were done for the day. And I tried a trick that I had never tried before, and it, I didn't land it right. And I ended up um, falling 50, from, from 15 feet in the air straight on, Ouch. straight on my head, cracked my helmet, got a concussion, ended up in the hospital. So that was my one and only competition. But what I did is I remained a, quote, pro, but I did it, I chose to do it in a different way. So I actually um, started to, there were two skate parks, and I sort of became like, you know, like the resident pro, like golfers do at golf courses where they're, you know, where yeah. I skated and the kids that were there, I just kind of would skate around and kind of like coach them a little bit and show them stuff, you know. So I was kind of doing that. For the remainder of my time in California and had a couple of companies that were giving me free stuff. You used to do some skateboarding when you were living in New York too, just for fun. Just recently. Yeah, I was actually had a board up until 
um, it, it kind of it kind of got a little bit beat up um, from the streets of New York. But um, but I was skating quite a bit from like say 2012 through through probably a couple of years ago. It's interesting because back as a kid, we would never would have imagined someone like that someone you know approaching middle age would be like doing that. And I've got people still doing it. Oh. I mean, I don't know what Tony. I wonder what Tony Hawk's doing lately. Yeah. They're all skating. I mean, they're but he's not even that old compared to. I mean, Tony. So I know all the Z Boy guys like Tony Alva. Tony's got to be in his early 60s. I think he's, I think he's 61 or two. He skates every day. Same, same. You know, probably not as crazy as what he was doing before, but he still, he still skates yeah. pools. And I think he's still, you know. And most of these guys that I was skating with, quite a few of them that are still alive, are skating, and they're doing stuff that's pretty dangerous, you know. But because they never really stopped, their reflexes and their reactions are still in tune and that's the thing right. about skating vertical and skating half pipes and pools is it really takes a lot to get that back again the balance there's a whole thing to it but it's that's another thing i regret you know i wish i would have kept that up because it's really really healthy it's one of those super healthy things to do except when you fall on your head and and die and get a concussion and then uh and then you wake up and go mom i want to be a rock star yeah yeah that, <laughs> and she's like no yeah. That was just, that was just, I mean, I was very into music in California, but that, that was, that transformation was really just forced, uh, forced upon me by moving to New York. And so my, the things I loved, which, you know, number one was surfing and then skateboarding. And then I was into photography and music. Music was definitely always at the top, but yeah. um, with everything else, but it, be, it, be, it started becoming more and more important to me when I was still in California, still surfing. It was a big part of my life. But when I got to New York, it was sort of, okay, well, this is, this is what I guess I can do. It just kind of, it was very organic how that happened. That's a whole different story that we don't have to get into, but, um, it was very, very organic and unplanned how I, uh, how music became the prominent thing. Um, only about six months out, if that, after I moved to, um, New York. Well, I mean, isn't that the thing, though? Like, I mean, I went to film school, and you had all these people who wanted to make movies, and it's fascinating how there are people that are dying to do something that can never get a break, and then someone just falls into it. Yeah. And it a lot of it is natural talent. A lot of it is serendipitous. A lot of it is just having the right connection. I mean, that's the thing about art. It's a very random thing. I mean, there's a lot of people who do make it out of sheer willpower, but it seems like there's usually a... I always say you have to have money and resources a lot of times mm. on top of the talent. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't matter, but... There was an element um, that is hard to explain that I carried with me um, when when I did anything, whether it was surfing, skateboarding, or, or music. And, right. uh, and when, I, when I latched on to music, there was, there was just a, there was an energy in me that I swear was really the, the catalyst behind success. And it was just this undying rabid love that i had for it um deep deep passion and commitment to it i mean i lived it and breathed it i couldn't get enough of it the smells the you know i loved going to the music stores just because i smelled good to me you know it's like huh. yeah there's just when you get to that level of being so into something and loving it so much and there's a natural thing that i think just pushes you along and if you happen to be lucky enough to have some talent, the combination is, to me, is is unstoppable. It's so hard to, I wish I had it still, 
you know, I, I wish I didn't lose that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. There was a time from 17 to 21, which yeah. I got signed at 21 where people could tell me anything. They could be really negative and say, it's so hard. You're never going to make it. You're too this, you're too that, whatever. It, I didn't even hear them. You know, it, they could have said anything to me. And I, I just, I couldn't, literally, I could not hear them. And it's weird how it went from that to like probably not even three years or, well, five years later, once the, start, the success started coming, that all those words penetrated like they didn't do when I was, you know, younger. It, it's important to have that when you're young. Because even later on, when you, yeah, everyone gets older, they have some doubts. Yeah. But it's it was good to have that at the age that you did because yeah. it kept you going. Yeah. And you're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still doing this after all these years. And, yeah. you know, even with the rough times, you, you have to love it. Yeah. That's just the one thing that keeps you going. Otherwise, you know, I mean, you know, we could have got kind of bankers or something and made a lot more money, but there's no fun in that. Yeah. I don't think yeah. <laughs> maybe some bankers do find a lot of fun in it, but not me, not you. You know, there's always that part of you that goes, you know, I could have like, you know, the, the problem is, yeah, there's a part of me that sort of goes, you know, I had success at such a young age that I had plenty of time in my mid twenties or, or even early thirties to reassess everything and maybe go back to school or you right. know, pursue some other thing. And I, I just, you know, I forged ahead. You know, I, I, I loved it so much and I, I, that it was already established that this is what I, this is kind of my identity. It's not what I do. It's who I am. And I think a lot of people that, that have, are in the arts relate to that on some level or That's really right. anything that they love. Maybe there's an accountant that really loves, you know. Oh, there probably is. Yeah. Well, good luck with the Australian tour. Well, thank you. And thank you. Thank you for, for chatting. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been great to catch up and, uh. I look forward to seeing you showing up in the news as a uh, man outruns shark on surfboard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's hope that's the headline. That would be a, that's the preferable <laughs> one to the uh, alternative. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you, Brian. That wraps up this latest episode of Side Jams. Please join me for the next installment, which will feature singer Militia Vox from Judas Priestess. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law, and I licensed them through AudioSocket. As always, thank you very much for listening. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You just bought a home in the suburbs, but no one told you about all the birds, specifically this one, who seems to be calling out Roy. Roy. But who exactly is Roy? And why doesn't he ever respond? Maybe Roy is just bird speak for save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. I guess until Roy answers, we'll never know. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.